fairy tales, at least traditionally, had a pretty straightforward purpose. They were to teach children the truth. Um, They usually involved some um, pretty nasty, scary revelation about the nature of the world. What's your favourite fairy story, Ali or Cameron? Have you got any old traditional fairy stories? Like Hansel? Cinderella, yeah. So Cinderella, immediately in Cinderella we are introduced to horrible sisters, aren't we? Um, And yet... There is the hope that things can get better. And over the, uh, through the story, eventually, everything is wonderful and Cinderella mar- marries the prince. Um, there's a reason for that. Because fairy tales grew out of fundamentally Christian understanding of the world. A Christian understanding of the world says we must be realistic about how bad the world is, how bad human beings are. We must take that seriously. Yeah. Jack climbs up his, um, his beam and uh, discovers awful things up there. Terrible things. Um, we must take seriously how bad the world is, how bad human beings are, But we must understand that there is a narrative to this world. There is a story to this world. And the story, through many trials and tribulations, will result in nothing but good. It's interesting how modern fairy tales have tended to uh, uh, adjust that somewhat. I think Philip Pullman maybe. A particular example, if you think of, uh, if you think of what, what he's doing, he's doing something much more ambivalent there. He leads children to a real sense of ambivalence, even about their parents. Are they good? Are they bad? And the resolution of it involves the heroic individual. It has some connections with older fairy tales, but, but, but there, is a, there is a shift in much modern fairy tales telling. Because people have lost sight of that fundamental narrative. But the fundamental narrative is what the Bible teaches and what Romans teaches. And it is that fundamental narrative out of which springs the good news of the gospel. Gospel just means good news. And that's what Romans 1-8 to has been explaining I've said it many, many times, so, so let me just revi- reprise it a little bit with you um, over these last few, few months. Romans 1 verse 17 is absolutely programmatic for the whole of Romans 1 to 8 at least. <clears throat> and, the, and the last sentence, a quote from Habakkuk 2.4 is, is really, really important. And I have, I have suggested that we should read it not quite in the way that the NIV puts it, the righteous will live by faith. Because it doesn't make crystal clear what actually Paul is trying to say. What Paul is trying to say is made much clearer if we read it as 
Those who are righteous by faith will live. That is the gospel, according to Paul in Romans 1 to 8. That is the good news. It has two elements. And the first one is unfolded then in Romans 1 to 4. What did, what, what, what did Paul mean by that phrase, righteous by faith? Well, he meant, meant something very simple and very profound. He meant that human beings can be right with God. The bad news is, the bad news that all children need to start to understand, which is why they're they're, uh, um, taught fairy tales, the bad news is that things are, are very bad, much worse than we might have thought. The wrath of God, for instance, Uh, is being revealed against all ungodliness, as he says in Romans 1. And then in Romans 2 and 3, he he, he backs us into a corner. Do you remember us seeing that? He backs us into a corner where we get to the point where we have to come to the conclusion, I cannot put myself right with God. I simply can't do it. But we need that bad news to see the good news. One writer I was reading just this morning said um, uh, he reads these fairy tales to his um, children or to his little daughter. And his daughter says, no, please, please, I want to hear the story. She's so terrified by the story in the first bit, um, whichever fairy tale it is, she's often under the covers, but she knows it's going to be good in the end. She wants to go through that. And the bad news um, about reality is Romans 3 verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. We human beings must take that massively seriously. There is no human being ever who could put themselves right with God, who could say, I am righteous before God. But the good news is, there is a way to be righteous, to be right with God, and it is through faith in Christ. Verse 25, for instance, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. That is, that is Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for our sins, And then he completes the sentence, to be received by faith. That is, we receive that, that the benefit of that simply through faith, simply through trusting Jesus. So that Jesus' death is now for, for my sins, a payment for my sins. And I receive that simply through trusting Jesus. What does it mean? To be righteous by faith, Paul, it means just that. You get right with God through trusting Jesus and there's no other way. That is magnificently good news. And then Romans 5 to 8 builds on that last final 
power of words, those who are righteous by faith, they will live. And again, the bad news is very bad in uh, uh, the second half of chapter 5. All of us are descendants of Adam. We all belong to one race, the human race. And all of the human race is bound together in rebellion against God, in sin, and that finally finds its seal in death. But the good news Paul starts to explain in Romans 5 as well. It is possible. In fact, every one of those people who has been put right with God through faith in Jesus, every one of those also, because they are united with Jesus, receives life. We are taken out of that old humanity that was bound to all of the rest of the human race who are descended from Adam and we become members of a new humanity with a new head, that is Jesus. That's the picture that he's developing in the second half of Romans 5. And he says that means one thing in particular which is really spectacular. That means that now Christians can start to live differently. Not perfectly, but we can start to have some measure of victory over sin. And he unfolds that in Romans 6 and 7, and there may well be questions that come uh, later, until he gets to the first half of Romans 8, when he says that happens by the Spirit of God. What the Spirit of God does is is he indwells us in such a way that we find ourselves subjectively able to enjoy that relationship and reconciliation with God that objectively God won for us through Christ's death. Look at verse 15 of Romans 8. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live again in fear, but rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit whom God gives us then enables us to to begin a relationship with God which is in some ways as close as Jesus' relationship with God who cried out to God, Abba, Father, when he walked the earth. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And it is that work of God that gives us life because we now enjoy a relationship with God and that gives us an ability now to defeat sin. But that life that we begin to enjoy now will continue on through groaning Verses um, 18 to um, 27 of Romans 8. Through difficulty. But it will continue on. Until finally um, we meet God face to face. Those God foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, 
he also glorified. If you have been put right with God now, you enjoy life now which comes by the Spirit whereby you know and love God as your Father. And you are promised life in eternity. Because what God began, he will carry on to completion. In all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Generation after generation after generation of children learned at their mother's knee stories which would introduce them to the great true story. It has its bad side. We are much worse than we thought and we can't put ourselves right with God nor change our behaviour. But the good news is magnificently good. We can be put right with God through faith in Christ. And all of those who are put right with God in that way, all of those find life now and life in eternity. That is the gospel. Those who are righteous by faith will live. That's enough of me. Um, what I want to suggest to you is that you turn to uh, someone near you and you um, uh, say, well, uh, what did I make of that? What questions do I want to ask Peter? And I'll give you um, uh, 30 seconds to um, discuss that. And then I'll try to answer questions that you might have. What questions do you want to ask? Okay. Well, we'll start off with Cameron. Cameron, what's your question? Why couldn't God simply make us not sin? Why couldn't God simply make us not sin? Well, he helps us not to sin, yeah? You've learned, you've learned that by God gives us his, his spirit. But what he wants to do, I think, you know, it might be related to the question, why didn't God take you to be with himself the moment you became a Christian? Why didn't he just do that? 
Why, why, did, why has he left you to have endless birthdays that your dad has to pay for um, <laughs> uh, uh, on the earth before you go and meet uh, God? And the, ar- the answer seems to be that actually there's something beautiful that God um, uh, is looking for in us learning to cooperate with God as we grow. So, so alongside the Bible saying, God gives you his spirit to enable you to defeat sin. He says at the same time, so you must work really hard to defeat sin. Because there is that, that cooperation between you and God is what he wants to see. And that's what, assuming you live to a ripe old age, that's what the next 70 or 80 years of your life is going to be about. It's going to be about you learning that to, so that you become more like Jesus. Is that all right? Good. He's got the next one. You don't have to be um, school age to ask, ask questions. Ask, ask them. Yep. Yep. Yes. Um, uh, so, how, how does that how does that work? What is our part in it? Because because the Bible, um, as Cameron's already alluded to, says you know you must obey, you must persevere, and so on. Um, some people say that those two truths just sort of sit alongside each other in tension. Um, uh, I'm not convinced of that because it seems to me. That, for instance, if um, uh, the commands to that you must persevere left it fundamentally up to us as to whether we're going to keep going as Christians, the promises that that we will persevere, like in Romans 8:30, would become meaningless. They wouldn't be in tension with that. They would just be meaningless. So actually, I think that, it, that, that, that there's a hierarchy that works like this much more. That actually God has sovereignly for you um, placed his seal on you. You know, all, all, the, all the images, for instance, of the gift, gift of the Spirit to believers are about the promise. It is a seal. God's marked you that you belong to him. The Holy Spirit is, a, is, a, is, a, is the first fruit the Holy Spirit has come and given you the first fruit of a promise of a final harvest. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. That is, you know, God's put his deposit on you and he's going to bring the full payment in, in time. They're all about promise. So I think there is a promise to you. You will persevere. That will be worked out in the sort of visible realm and the practical realm with, with your, your active obedience in your struggle to obey. Can people fall away? Um, what I would say is, uh, observationally, some people do fall away. Um, but actually, the, the Bible seems to say that, that, that those people were never really amongst the people of God. People can put up a facade 
quite well, sometimes for some years, and even, even um, deceive themselves. But there is a fundamental and irreversible change, the Bible says, that happens uh, to us when we become a Christian. We move from death to life, from darkness to light. And, and, and that God does not reverse. So I, I, we can explore it further. Um, we spent how long the ministry of trainees talking about this? Um, but I think the basic truth is that, yes, you must persevere, and it's really, really important that you persevere, but over all of that is a, is a promise that God keeps his people. Practically, I've found that actually those who, I, you know, I've been very thoroughly convinced are Christians over a, over a long period, I've never seen one of those totally fall away. I've seen them make a complete mess of their life. You know, so, so that, they, so that their, abs- their life is absolutely in ruins. But that underlying sense of conviction that there is a real God, Jesus, Jesus is, the, is the way, um, doesn't go. So actually my personal experience, I think, also fits with that. What I think is a biblical observation, that people do persevere. Those promises are real. You can trust them. Ah, Ben said he's getting labelled as that guy in other... So that guy's going to uh, ask a question. Yeah, so there are, t- there are two levels. There are two levels of answer to that, I think. And it may be worth exploring both of those levels with the person or, on, or, 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 or only one. The sort of top level answer is that in the, in the mis- mysterious, the mysteries of God, God knows everything, past, present and future, and he knows what he's going to do, and he is... is uh, has an unstoppable plan. Okay, that's but that, that's a top level one. Um, overwhelmingly, when Scripture speaks to people, and entirely, I think when Scripture speaks to people, no, almost entirely, when Scripture speaks to people in the situation that you're uh, at, it deals it deals not at that top level because that's a mystery in the mind of God. It deals at the level of you also. It's it's absolutely real that you also have a responsibility to respond and that Jesus makes promises like uh, everyone, no one who comes to me will I turn away um, that there are those really strong um, promises in scripture and so I say look it's actually what, what you want if you want to turn away from God then um, you can do that and it will be become for you a blindness. But actually if you find in the, uh, at the bottom of your heart you want to know the true God, 
There is an absolute promise from Jesus that as you come to him, he will accept you, he will reveal himself to you, not necessarily immediately, it may take time, and you will find him. And I do say that to people. I, I, I say, you know, that is a firm promise of Jesus. But it is for you to come. It is for you to seek. It is for you to, with sincerity in your heart, um, to say, please show me yourself. And all of those who do that find God. 100%, I guarantee it. I've not been proved wrong yet. Cameron might get a second question to ask if others aren't, but are there other things related to Romans 1 to 8 that then Cameron gets his second question. If you mean by, um, uh, it depends what you mean by hierarchy. Um, do Christians are Christians better than non-Christians? The answer would be really no. Because because Christians are have to by definition be people who say, actually God, I've looked inside my heart and I've really accepted that I'm really really bad. So that intrinsically about me can't put me above other people I have to say you know, I'm definitely no better than other, uh, other people and I may be a lot worse than other, other people who aren't yet Christians um, but if it's in terms of um, what God is going to do for people Christians have the amazing privilege that despite the fact that we're not any better than anyone else God has placed his love on us and he promises to lift us up and to take us to, to himself. So we have an amazing privilege in knowing God. But I wouldn't say it's a hierarchy. I wouldn't say it's because we're better than other people. It's, but we are amazingly privileged as Christians. And we want other people to come and join that in that. That's why we tell people who aren't yet Christians about God. Because anybody can come and share in that privilege. Is that all right? Uh, we'll we'll probably put a put the lid on round questions. Uh, Clement's last question. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. First of all, I would say because salvation is by grace. Um, by, God, by God's grace and by God looking into our heart um, and seeing what is really going on in there, I don't think there's an absolutely sort of defined formula that everybody must tick a certain set of boxes because God can save the severely mentally um, damaged person, for instance, 
who can, you know, who's, who's got a very little mental ability, but has a sort of instinctive love for God and for Jesus, and I, I'm, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that they can be saved and they can feel confident that they're saved. So I don't think it's a tick list. I don't think it's entirely a set of, you know, an exam question, an, an exam that you have to pass. But the elements of what, what it means to have Christian faith are fundamentally focused around Jesus. And particularly his death on the cross um, um, for our sins. It's very important about who Jesus is. He is God the Son because it only works if God is paying the penalty for our sins. We offended against God. Don't, we can't, it's not just to make a third party um, pay for it. It has to be God who pays for it. So it's very important that Jesus is God and man because human offences must be paid by a, an appropriate human um, person. God, if God had just stayed completely immune from it all and sort of somehow sucked, sucked up our sins into himself with no sense of any penalty or cost, there would not be justice and God is determined to be just. So it's very important that Jesus is fully God and fully man and died on the cross for our sins. And all we can do is, uh, is come to Jesus and say, please forgive me, please let your death on the cross be for my sins. That is what faith is. It is, it is not doing something in one sense. It's, it's saying, I can't do anything to put myself right with you. I come with empty hands. And that, it, that is Christian faith. So that's the heart of what Christian faith is. Um, God expects bright people who are doing doctorates at Oxford to use their brain and, and to, to actually have a, have a sort of well-formed understanding of that. But the essence of it is so simple that a small child or a mentally handicapped person, uh, I think, can, can embrace it.